Well, we are back on Saturday Chronicle, uh, and now we have David Finney, who is um, the head of history in uh, UL. David is living in Tumblini, and um, he's a cockman, and he's after uh, launching a book, Edmund Sexton Perry, uh, The Politics of Virtue and Intrigue in 18th Century Ireland. Well, David, uh, congratulations on getting your new book. Thanks very much, Matt. Uh, I think you were on with John and uh, Jim there recently, and you talked about the book. But um, maybe we talked today about uh, how how you go about, and maybe for the listeners, how you go about uh, producing a book like this. Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a, it took a long time, Pat. I have to say, I started researching it probably 10, 15 years ago. Um, and it's the research that takes all the time. <clears throat> um, but when you get to when you get to actually writing up the research, um, it depends on the person. But for me, I I kind of wrote it as I went. So I would do a good chunk of research, then I would would write it up. I knew it. That's a, it's about a hundred thousand. It's about one hundred twenty thousand words. Um, and I split it up into chapters. There's I think there's about nine chapters. Um, they're all about. 10,000 words long, or some of them are 15,000 words, so I think one of them could be even 20,000 words long. Um, so you have, to, you have to structure it would be the most important thing. You have to know the type of structure that you want. Now, this is a biography, so I, I, I kind of took it, chronolo I, I took it chronologically, you know, you start when he's, when he's, at, when he's a young fella, and you deal, and you finish when he's at the end of his career, which is, and I was mostly focusing on his on his political career, because I didn't know a lot about his private life or things like that. And um, going going about reception it now, uh, is is a big deal. Like, would say, no, where would you go to reception? Yeah. Get on the reception and stuff. Well, I hope that I have found everything that there is out there to be found about this man. I went everywhere, Pat. Uh, I looked up every catalogue in, in every library, in every archive in this country, in England. You see, now this is possible with the internet. Before the internet, let's say 20 years ago, 20, maybe 30 years ago now, you'd actually have to go into the physical library or the archive and physically ask to look at the catalogue. Um, so now it is actually quite possible to find a little nugget, and in some cases it might only be a single letter in, in America. It could be in an American archive, mm -hmm. somebody might have been collecting autographs. You know, mm -hmm. that was quite common a uh, hundred years ago, you might be just collect, collecting autographs. So they'd take a letter, um, they wouldn't be interested in the letter, they'd just be interested in the autograph. And that's why it ends up there. So in one or two cases, I've found letters like that randomly in, in all over the place. So I spent a summer in America looking at his papers, his own, the papers, uh, he, the letters he would have received and collected uh, were ultimately sold by one of his descendants to an American um, philanthropist or a billionaire in the 1920s and they're now in the Huntington Library California so I spent a nice summer there um, and it did take the whole summer well it took a good chunk of the summer to, to review it so it, take, it does take a lot of time um, when the papers are all over the place Pat. 
And you want, you want to have a huge interest in this way, wouldn't you? That's what I say to anybody who's embarking on any project like this. Don't do something that you're only half interested in, because when the going gets tough, it'll be very easy to ditch something if you weren't interested in it. So you have to, you have to, you have to like what persevere. you have and to persevere. Correa, why did you choose um, Edmund Sexton Perry? Yeah, um, I had come across him before when I was looking at politics in Limerick in the 18th century, local politics in the 18th century. And uh, he was a figure at that point. Uh, he had ran for election. He didn't, he didn't get elected. Um, I wasn't that interested in his life. I was just interested in the way he was engaging in the political world. But when I had finished that earlier project, I said, hmm, he's, a, he, 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 he's, a very, he's an interesting national character. And I wanted something to bring me from Limerick up into the parliament in Dublin and to explore what was going on nationally in the second half of the 18th century. My first project was, was the first half. And so he seemed like a useful fellow. And the other reason, of course, is that he hasn't got a lot of attention. And if you're setting out to do something like this, you don't want to be repeating what other people have said. You kind of want to be contributing something to knowledge and to scholarship and so on. So that's my contribution. I hope, it, I hope it'll stand the test of time. <laughs> yes. And you're, you're the only person that you know of so far who has written about this exactly, man. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. And, and basically, then, would you have to physically write out all the, all the, the, the paragraphs of the book? Yeah. Put them all, physically yeah. write them all out. I, a lot of time is spent in drafting. Yeah, so at the, at the, the, the way I would do it, and everybody is different. I bring all my notes together on a particular theme. Let's say it was about... Um, Let's say it was about uh, the development of Limerick City. I bring all of my various notes that I would have taken from the archives and try to make some sense of them and put them into order. And then I'd start writing based on those notes. I'd write a paragraph. And a paragraph might take me a day. And, and another day I might get... I, I could get half the chapter written. Depends on the yeah, day. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Every writer is like that. And... Um, <clears throat> I'd produce what I would hope would be a reasonably good chapter, but that chapter then would be reread, it would be uh, torn asunder, I'd look at it again, I'd take away something, I'd add something to it, and it would go through that drafting a few, few times. So I've read that in manuscript, that book um, that we're talking about. I'd say 10, 20 times. I don't know how many times I would have reread. And you're improving, you're trying to improve it all the time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you always spot something. And if it doesn't, sometimes it, it might make sense to you. The other thing I always do is I ask other people to read it. Because they'll very, very quickly tell you, listen, you're not making any sense here. And sometimes you're so close, it's like anything in life, sometimes you're so close to something, you can't actually see the wood from the mm -hmm. trees. And would you, would you have an editor um, when you were finished who would read the entire book and yeah. suggest changes yeah. or improvements? Well, when or it goes through a publisher, and it's Four Courts Press, who's a big national publisher based in Dublin, they would read it and they would make their suggestions, they would identify any mistakes that they could. That they, that they, and happily, because I had been rereading it and I had asked two people to read it, they, they too would look at it. 
Uh, I had got a lot of the issue, but there's always something that the that they would pick up on. The other part of the process is that book is peer reviewed, and what that means is it's sent out by the publisher to two people whom I don't know, and I still don't know who they are. It's anonymous, and they make the decision on whether it's published or not. And they would be, since you say peer review. They would be people like yourself, exactly. Uh, who would be who would have a handle on the history of the eighteenth exactly. century. Exactly, they'd be experts in eighteenth century Irish history, and it's a small world. So I definitely know them, but yeah. I don't know them. <laughs> I, I I I know who they might be, but it's never revealed. And that's you know when when you see papers in Nature and and uh, or any of the other scientific papers, they always say oh, this has been peer-reviewed, and, and it's, it's a sort of a quality test. Hmm. And um, the, uh, Edmund Six and Kelly, they, they, they owned an awful lot of Limerick City, or they, they developed a lot of Limerick yeah. City, David, did they? They did. They actually owned what we today consider Limerick City. city yeah. So the city centre today, it's a grid pattern, and that was built in the second half of the 18th century. And you're right, Pat, it was, it was owned by this man, Edmund Sexton Perry. The family had acquired it a couple of hundred years before that. And of course, Limerick being the subject of various sieges, their estate, their houses, and they would have been, they, they, this would have been on the outskirts of what was the medieval city. So if you know King John's Castle and you know St. Mary's Cathedral, that was the city yeah, yeah. in the 18th century. And the estate that Perry had was considered outside the walls. Um, and during the sieges up to the 1690s, um, all of that would have been flattened. So it wasn't good to be a landlord outside the city. Yeah, yeah. But when peace came in the 18th century and there was no more conflict really from, from that sort of scale of conflict, um, the walls came down or started to come down. And uh, the 18th century was a bit of a boom period, a bit of a Celtic tiger period. Yeah, yeah. For much longer than our Celtic tiger, Limerick City was a major um, trading port and the agricultural hinterland, including County Clare, was massive and feeding into the city and it going. So there was a lot of money. Perry was clever. He noticed there was a lot of money and he leased plots of land. He set out the streets in the grid and he leased land to developers, what we would today call developers, and they built the blocks. And they then, they were the ones who made the money, they then leased out houses as uh, to other people. So the ground landlord, you'd be familiar with the term ground landlord was Perry. So he would have made a small, of course the idea was that once the initial lease, let's say it was 30 years, let's say it was 60 years, once that lease was uh, finished, the next Perry would be able to lease that ground for even more because it was then developed. And the houses that we see today, let's say in O'Connell Street, William Street, Cecil Street, Mallow Street, yeah. would all have, the, and up around Perry Square, yeah. would all of those have been built in the second half of the 18th century? By, by, about the, by about 1800, about half of what you see today was built. And certainly by 1820, nearly all of it. So it started in the 1760s, and you get the last sort of, Perry Square was the last 
area kind of developed. And it's called a square, but you'll notice that there it is not a square like Merrion Square. They're not houses on all sides because no, no, no. the money ran out. Yeah. Ireland went into an economic depression in the 1820s, and so buildings stopped. So um, it was. It could have, you know, it could have went on and on, um, but all these things come to an end. Hmm. So the Georgian, the red brick houses, the red brick houses that, that we see today, yeah. come from that period. That's right. And you mentioned all the names: Mallow Street, Glentworth Street, uh, Sexton Street. Um, they're all Perry family names. So why Mallow? Mallow is a, always one is a tricky one because Mallow in County Cork. Delighted you, you recognise my county of birth. <laughs> um, it's Mallow and County of Cork because the Perrys had a small estate around Mallow, Mallow and part yeah. of the title was Lord Lentworth of Mallow yeah. in County Cork. They had inherited a bit. Of, so they, they, and Henry Street, of course. Mm -hmm. Henry Street. They all, so all the streets are named after family names. You do. Yeah, that's right. And I, I'm just wondering as well, Pat, if I can... Yeah, yeah. The will say you as a lecturer in in UL, mm. um, you know I can obviously you're doing this outside of your work uh, times, but can you because you specialize in the 18th century, presumably you incorporate your research uh, to your to your classes. Yes, yeah, this this would be considered part of my work, Jim. Um, the university gives lecturers time to do research. Part of my contract to, re to, to be a researcher. So, so we, we, we would say that 40% of one's time is teaching, 40% is research, and 20% administration. But yes, um, the, that, the politics I deal with there, I have, a, I have a class, a final year, for final year students, it's an elective, so they choose to come to me or not. Um, it's on 18th century politics. And for the last 10 years, 10 classes, uh, I've been telling, and I'm writing a book on <laughs> such and such. And they're fascinated by it. And so this year, actually, one, one or two of those students appeared at the, at the launch of it. Um, so they've been listening to that. And of course, the best classes, of course, ask questions and talk about it. And some people might have heard of him. So we engage. And so that's the, one, of the, one of the processes, Pat, you asked about the process. Um, actually, by talking to people when you're in the middle of a book can help your ideas come and emerge and, and, and things crystallize that way. Whereas if you're just writing away, you're sometimes not thinking, you know. So by actually talking about it, whether it's in, with those students or with friends or at a conference, lots of people would present preliminary findings as part of a conference. Or a local talk. I've given a lot of local talks about this man, um, and it does help. It does help um, focus. Yes, yeah, mm. and it's. I mean, it's brilliant in that sense that you have, through your research, you have unearthed information mm. about this man, and you know, maybe even more importantly, his times and mm. the things that went on, which have never been published before. Yeah. And yeah. so, your book is there as a as a reference for well, I hope so. and future that's the, students. That's the point of it. Really, it's his his role in national politics was one of the aims of trying to achieve what, what the book is trying to achieve. And because he was Speaker of the Parliament, you know, the Cahirlock we'd call it today. Of the Irish Parliament. Of the, of the Irish, of the 18th century Irish Parliament, yeah. 
he was supposed to be neutral. Mm. Yeah. But he was far from neutral. And he was, that's partly inspiring the title of the book. There's a lot of intrigue. There's a lot of stuff hidden. And um, the book pro wants to expose, tries to expose all this. And at a time when Ireland was uh, in the midst of a big constitutional crisis in the 1770s and 1780s, the Irish Parliament wanted more freedom from the British legislative, the British constitution. They wanted um, the right to legislate for themselves. And he was part of that story. Now, that's his part of the story was a bit hidden and secluded. Um, so that was what the book was really trying to reveal, as well as all the other things. And that would have been what we would have heard in history class as Grattan's Parliament. Exactly, Grattan's yeah. Parliament. And, and of course, Grattan gets all the credit. Yeah. Yeah. Grattan gets all the credit. <laughs> yeah. And there's a moment in the book when uh, Grattan writes a memoir, or, well, his son produces the memoir for Henry Grattan, and there's a part of that says, uh, um, oh, and you'll remember the speech I gave uh, during the constitutional crisis. And they all said it was, uh, it was the product of a, of a boy. And I looked up to Speaker Perry and we both smiled at each other because it was Perry who wrote the speech, but nobody knew. Yes, yes. So um, Perry was a kind of a father figure to Grattan. He was a lot older. Grattan was a lot younger. Um, he had a, he had therefore a lot more parliamentary experience, um, and they were friendly and they were close. Um, but Grattan, because he is he makes the right speeches, Perry Cant as speaker, um, Grattan and a few others. He gets the, credit. gets the credit. Gets the credit. Yeah, there's an old picture there in the middle of the book of the Irish House of Commons in 1780, yeah. an he, he, Perry Jones seated in the speaker's chair among those yeah. in the gallery of Perry's daughter, Frances and Diana. That's a lovely picture, uh, Jim, isn't it? Of the, yes. Of the, uh, yes. And, and I bring my class up there to the Irish Parliament yeah, building. Yeah, yeah. The, all that yeah. remains now, the building of course remains, but the actual chamber of the House of Commons was dismantled as part of the conditions for the sale to the Bank of Ireland. Yeah, yeah. Um, but the House of Lords, stayed, and of course he moved on to the Irish House of Lords, um, Perry did. Um, that's still there. And we actually have our class yes. in that chamber, courtesy of the Bank of Ireland. And there's a big table in the... There's a massive I, big I table. I was in it once, yeah. yes. Yeah. yeah. Tell yeah. just, what was his connection with Killaloo? Well, the connection with Killaloo, he, he, was, he was very eager to promote Irish trade, Irish industry. And whereas today politicians would love to see motorways being built here, there and everywhere. And we've seen a lot of motorways built during the Celtic Tiger years. The 18th century version were the canals. So Perry and others wanted to link Limerick and other parts of the West with Dublin. Dublin, as it is today, was the major port of the country. Um, and the idea was you bring agricultural goods and other goods to uh, Dublin for sale, and you bring coal and other natural resources back to Limerick. Yeah, yeah. The problem, of course, is that um, the Shannon between Killaloo and Limerick was unnavigable. You couldn't bring boats up because there were various obstacles up along the way. So the proposal was to build a canal from Limerick uh, to Killaloo. Yeah, yeah. Um, and at the same time, a canal would be built from Dublin to the Shannon, what is today the Grand Canal. And uh, 
An awful lot of money was invested, parliamentary grants, thousands and thousands. Today, millions was spent on just that little stretch from Limerick to Killaloo. How long do you think it would have taken to dig a canal? In normal, in normal circumstances, you're only talking a couple of, a couple of years. This particular canal uh, took 40 years. 40 years to build. Now, yes. uh, there was no shortage of money. In fact, money was thrown at it. It was the greatest scandal um, that there could be. Why? So was because it people was, like It wasn't Perry. technically difficult. It was technically difficult. There were bogs that you had to go through. There, was, there were rivers that you had to... Kind of the Blackwater River is down there near 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 Plassey. You had to you had to kind of figure that out, and that had to be straightened up. So it was challenging. Part of the problem was that people like Perry thought they knew everything, um, and that they lots of these people felt they could design the canals, yeah, yeah, yeah. and actually they were just amateurs. They mm -hmm. didn't get the proper engineers in. Mm -hmm. um, that was part of the problem. Uh, others, a like, bit like today, didn't want a canal going through their property and held up the project. The weather could sometimes destroy the works. There were lots of reasons why, um, why it wasn't possible. But anyway, he did live long enough to see it open. Um, but I'm not sure whether he had any fond memories yes. of it. <laughs> okay. So, um, <coughs> David, I think we've run out of time. And, uh, uh, the book is a fine publication anyway, and I'd say anybody out there that's interested in 18th century um, um, history should uh, go out and maybe purchase it. Yeah. We had a lovely evening in the Hunt Museum when we were, um, and David was unveiling the, the book, and uh, Jim does a, a program coming out in the, maybe in the... Yes, this, and, and it will be on, on, on podcast on, very on soon podcast, on, yeah. on the, and some interesting talks at the book launch. Book, 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 yeah. Uh, so, David, thanks very much for your uh, thanks, Pat. time. Yeah, that, thanks, Pat. Thanks, Jim. Time.